Romans chapter 8 is our text this morning, but I want, want you guys to turn to 2 Corinthians 11 as we begin. Okay, that'll be our first stop. 2 Corinthians 11 and Romans chapter 8. How many of you have been with us through the book of Romans or a good chunk of it? Okay. As of late in this chapter, here's kind of what we've been talking about. This amazing thing that, that Paul has joy in jail, peace in persecution, tranquility in tribulation. I've shared with you guys a couple times uh, the, the definition of a Christian, they say, is one who is completely fearless, continually cheerful, and constantly in trouble. That was the definition of Paul. Completely fear, fearless. You, I mean, he was stoned to death, they think, outside of Lystra. He's prayed back to life and he walks right back into the same city. Completely fearless. Continually cheerful. You read these these. Letters, some of them written from prison. And it says constantly in trouble. Well, that's, I can prove that to you. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11 here. And some of you, again, we've shared this recently, but I think it's important for all of us to be on the same page here, to look at the guy who's writing this letter in Romans chapter 8. Here we go, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 24. Paul says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Forty, they say, would kill you. So he was, he was uh, beat to within an inch of his life. Five times. Verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of water. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the Gentiles. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil. In sleeplessness often. Some of you are like, okay, that I can relate with. In hunger and thirst. In fastings often. In cold. And nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. That's just to give you that perspective from the get-go this morning. Paul has joy in jail. He has peace in persecution. He has tranquility in tribulation. And we look and go, what is this guy's secret? Again, Paul's been called the ever-ready bunny of the New Testament. He is unstoppable. I don't know if, this, if you can say this in a nice way, but to me, it, I can say it like this. Freakish. Like, dude, what is your deal? How do you do that? When you read this and you realize how joyful he is, don't you sometimes just kind of want to go, I wish I could get inside his head. Yeah? Amen. Turn to Romans chapter 8. That's exactly what we're doing here in Romans chapter 8. We are inside Paul's head. Welcome to... The inner dialogue of Paul. Y'all, in in Romans chapter 8, as we've been looking, he talks about it uh, mid-chapter. He says, look, suffering is part of life. But we see as we get further and further closer to the end of this chapter, it's like a snowball running uphill. It's like, I don't know how it's working, but, but Paul is getting more and more over-the-top joyous as we go. This is how a joyous Christian thinks. This is it, chapter 8. This is how a, a, a Christian in general is supposed to think, but this is how a, a joyous one does think, especially in times of trouble. These are 
some of the unseen facts, the truths that Paul is dwelling upon. We can look at this sometimes and we can go, oh, well, Paul's just you know, faking himself out. He's, he's lying to himself to make himself feel better. No, no, these are facts. This is in the Bible. If, if, you, don't, if you believe the Bible, then you have to take these as facts. Okay? If you don't believe the Bible, you're still welcome here, but you're crazy. Okay. <laughs> unseen facts, but they are true. Here are just some of the things Paul has been saying inside his head, okay? And they're true. Look at verse 18, Romans 8:18. 8, he says, look, there's this tie between suffering and glory. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And we saw even Peter also had that same knowledge. Look, whenever there's suffering, somewhere there's glory. I'm looking for the glory. Okay, uh, in verses 26 and 27, we see Paul reminding himself, look, the Spirit is interceding for me right this second. The Holy Spirit inside of me is praying a better prayer than I could ever pray to God the Father on my behalf, even when I am uh, crushed, it's, it seems, with tribulation. Verse 28, that's Romans 28, 828, that might be one of the ones that uh, Jeremy just described for you. <laughs> I think I can sort of say it. Uh, we know that all things work together for the good of those who, are, who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. That's in Romans 8, yeah, 28. That's the one. So here's the deal. Among other things, Paul is saying, look, there's this tie between suffering and glory. There's this tie, uh, there is the Spirit interceding for us, within us. And then in verse 28, he's basically saying, and God is interweaving all things for you. The stuff you love, and the stuff not so much. He says, if you are the called, he is interweaving every detail in your life. The stuff you like, the stuff you hate. He's weaving it all together. It says, according to his purpose. What is his purpose? You can find it there in the middle of verse 29. His purpose is that you be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Thursday we saw that said, send in the clones. That's the idea, is that his purpose is that you would be exactly like Jesus. That's, that's the purpose. That's the goal. The deal is, the, pro- the reason I have so many problems, and I would think you guys do too, is that we forget that his purpose is not that we be comfortable. It's that we be conformed. That clears up a lot for me. <laughs> When I realize, oh, that's right, your purpose, God, isn't that you make me comfortable, that you make me conformed to your perfect son's image. So, Paul's inner dialogue, just some of the things that we've seen in chapter 8, he's focused on imminent glory. Whenever he's suffering, he's focused on imminent glory. He is remembering that the Spirit is interceding for him. He's remembering that God is interweaving all things for his good and it's consistent with God's plan of conforming me. And could be most glorious of all that God is also in control of all of it. From the beginning, way before time actually, till the end when you are Standing perfect in his presence. God is in control of all of it. Look at uh, verse 30. In verse 29 it says, Look, we were, he foreknew us. He knew us ahead of time. He predestined us. And then in verse 30 it says, Moreover, whom, who, uh, moreover whom he, these he also called. So he foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Justified. Most of you know, if you've been with us, 
just as if I'd never sinned. What this is saying is God has been in control of, if you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Him, God has been in control from the very beginning and He will be at the very end. And He will not fail to accomplish that which He is setting out to do, which is make you just like Jesus. Christian, do you ever look at your, your own life, your failures, and wonder if God is up in heaven saying, Oy vey. I know I said whosoever will may come, but I didn't realize Doug was going to take me up on it. <laughs> Read verse 29 and 30 again. And remember, again, this only applies if you're a Christian. Verse 29 says that he knew you ahead of time and he knew what he was getting. Verse 29 also says that even though he knew what he was getting, he still picked you. Predestination, that word. Spurgeon said, I'm so glad that he picked me before the beginning of time. <laughs> Because if he knew me, he might not have picked me. He, he foreknew you. He predestined you. One day he called you. That's why I'm speaking to Christians. If he's called you and you have answered that call, then you are in this grid. After that, he justified you. The, the, the moment you gave your life to Jesus, he made you just as if I had never sinned. And this is most crazy of all. Look at it. It says, whom he justified, into verse 30, these he also glorified. Past tense. Did you see that? Past tense. They call it the prophetic past tense. In 1 Corinthians 15, we, we read about the, the day we're going to be glorified and we look forward to it so much. It's we're going to be put, put off the, this corruptible body for an incorruptible one. This really less than perfect body for one that is perfect. It, what this says then is at the end of verse 30 is that God picked you out from the beginning of time if you're a Christian and at the end of time you will guaranteed be standing glorified. Perfect. God who sees the end from the beginning speaks of your future glory as though it's so secure, so sure. He's seen it. He talks about it in the past tense. So to God, in one sense, I am already glorified. Perfect. I know you're thinking, I hide it well. <laughs> but it's true. Here's the deal. Okay, husbands, uh, not right now, but maybe later. Ask your wives, hey, do I seem glorified to you? perfect? I'm guessing the answer is going to be not quite yet. Same with wives, the same with kids. You can ask anyone. No one's going to say, hey, great job on the glory. You are perfect. But what this says is at the end of verse 30, it says, look, for the Christian, this is such a done deal that God talks about it in the past tense. Okay, that brings us to our text this morning. Verse 31, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? It's kind of a rhetorical question. Paul's saying, look, how do you respond to this kind of grace? The implication is Paul's just kind of left speechless. Paul's a preacher. You know, that's pretty rare. How is it that God who knew beforehand, think about this from Paul's personal perspective. How is it that God, who knew me beforehand, he knew that I would persecute the church, he knew I would be known as a widow maker by the church, 
He knew me beforehand, and yet he still picked me. He called me on that road to Damascus. He made me just as if I'd never sinned, and he's already seen me as glorified. Paul says, what do I say about that? I'm speechless. What's the proper response to that kind of love, that kind of mercy? How can it be that a holy God would love unholy me that way? Well, like any good preacher, he says, I'm speechless. And then he begins to talk. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Ray Steadman used to tell a story. It was a true story of a, a Christian young man back in the 70s. He was bullied because he was a Latino in an all-white school. His mo- mom was, was heartbroken because she would see her, her boy beat up and, and beat down in spirit. So she called the church to prayer. The church is praying. And one day, the biggest kid in school shows up at mom's door. We'll call him Mike. Huge kid. Strong. And he says, Ma'am, I just want you to know that I'm a Christian too. And I've told every kid in school who's messed with your son that if they ever do that again, they're going to answer to me. Ray said, imagine this little guy now walking around school in the shadow of Mike. If Mike is for me, who can be against me? That's the idea. That's exactly the idea here. If God is for me, if he's in my corner, who stands a chance against me? This is the inner dialogue that is going on in Paul's life while he's being beaten. You get it? This is what helped him have joy in jail, peace in persecution, Shiloh in shipwreck. Paul knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was for him. Can I ask you, do you, Christian, know that God is for you? Again, I'm only speaking to those who have a relationship. You've given your life to Jesus. Do you know that God is for you, that he's not against you, even in trials, especially in trials. I need to tell you, on Thursday, I had to confess, I've repented of the times when I have said to God, Lord, are you paying attention here? Do you, do you really love me? Are you really in my corner? Are you really for me? Maybe you're thinking, well, I want to know that, but sometimes I blow it. And when I do, I think he's against me. That's not true. The scriptures we just read said that he picked you from the foundation of the world. He knew what he was getting. If you are his, you are born again, then he is always for you. Even when he disciplines you. He's always in your corner. He always is rooting for you. Maybe though, this morning, you are more the uh, self-pitying kind well I want to believe that God is for me but because all of this bad stuff happens to me and he lets it I just know that he's against me a lot of bad stuff happened to Paul too but Paul knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was not against him but for him 
You're like, how did he know that? How could he know so completely? Do you want to be convinced that God is for you, that he's in your corner, that he loves you? I, can, I hope I can convince you. If you're willing to be convinced, I think I can convince you. Here's how. He spared no expense to bring you into his family. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall we not with him also freely give us all things? Paul says, yeah, he's for me. He gave up his one and only begotten son for me. Parents, what is more priceless in your household than your children? Let's say someone comes to you and says, look, I have a plan that will save all of the starving, diseased, hurting people in the world, anyone who's willing to be saved. But it requires that you give the life of your only son or daughter for the sake of mankind. Now here's the deal. The technology is such that after three days, your child will rise from the dead. It's assured, but still. Oh, and there's this. The actual death of your son will be gruesome. You'll see his back filleted by the whips, pieces of bone and glass. It'll be a, a death by public humiliation, asphyxiation. The, the world will mock and laugh at your noble son as he pays the price for them. Oh, and there's this. And in his moment of greatest need, you'll have to turn your back on him. As he takes on the sickness, the death of the whole world. Listen, that's a very, very quick, very inadequate illustration for you. Here's my, my question to you, Christian. And you wonder if God is for you. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He is for you. Let's read that again. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all things. How shall he, how shall he, it says, not with him also freely give us all things. It's implied there is that, look, if he gave the greatest thing for you, it's... Is there any good thing that he won't allow you? Let me ask you this. Do you need mercy today? He will give it to you if you need it. How do I know? He gave his son for you. You need wisdom? Ask for it. He will give it to you. Not only does he promise it in James 5, but hello, he gave his son for you. You need peace Ask Him for it. Whatever you need, maybe not whatever you want, but whatever you need, He will give you. How do I know? Because He gave the most precious thing for you. David Guzik says, look, it's like this. Hello, you bought the brand new car. They're going to throw in the steak knives. Right? It's arguing from the greater to the lesser. The Lord God in heaven gave His Son for you he did not suddenly turn stingy. It's not like God is up in heaven going, okay, great, now you want peace. <sighs> what, now you, now you want a roof over your head? 
It never stops with you. <laughs> God doesn't like that. That's what he's saying. He is gracious. He is kind. He gave the most precious thing. So that's when my heart starts to break. and I'm like, Lord, why would I ever think that you're not for me? That you're somehow against me? With God for him, Paul says, look, I'm unstoppable. Because if, now that I realize that God is for me, who could possibly be against me? Okay, So Paul is unstoppable, but next, Paul is unaccusable. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? To bring a charge against means to accuse. Who will accuse God's chosen people? God chose them. So how's that going to work? It is God who justifies... The, the wording here brings uh, across a courtroom scene. And the idea in verse 33, who shall bring a charge against? It, it means who shall successfully bring a charge against? Who shall successfully accuse you, Christian? The answer is no one. Now, the first answer that pops to mind is the devil. He wants to. He reads that. Who shall bring a charge against you? Devil goes, me. I'm good for that. That's my gig. He is called the accuser of the brethren. That is his self-appointed life's work. And man, he loves his job. Devil says, look, I'll bring a charge against you. I saw what you did last week. I was paying attention. I saw every single thing. I even saw the fight you had with your wife this morning before church. Devil says, I see your selfishness, your arrogance. Devil probably looks at verse 33 at first and goes, thanks, Paul, for the opportunity. I've got a list here of things to accuse. And it rolls down the, the aisle and out the door. Verse 33, who shall successfully, though, bring a charge against God's elect? That is God's chosen. It says it is God who justifies. See, the idea is the devil states his case against you. Just one small problem. The judge is the guy who shows you from the foundation of the world. The judge is the very one that the day you became born again justified you, made you just as if I had never sinned. The devil goes, <clears throat> verse 34, who is he who condemns? That is, calls for the death sentence. Same guy. The devil says, hey, I'm good for that. Quick note, actually, let's stop real quick and, and make sure that you aren't, you're aware of the, the difference between condemnation and conviction. Maybe some of you are. Condemnation is what the devil brings when he says, look, I know what you did last week. And you know what? You should never be able to go to God again. You don't deserve it. You shouldn't darken his door. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit takes the same information and says, look, confess. And you will be forgiven. Okay? Conviction draws you to the Lord. Condemnation puts you uh, away from Him. Okay, so now we're back in the courtroom. Verse 34. Who is he who condemns? The devil says, me, 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 oh, me. I, look, I've got this new list on that guy. Uh, it's been like ten minutes. Got a new really long list. This time, though, the judge is silent for just a minute. You might get a little bit nervous. Till he turns to your defense lawyer, Jesus. Verse 34, that word intercession, it actually has a legal sense to it. It's an advocacy. Jesus, your lawyer. So the judge turns to your lawyer, Jesus, says, hey, uh, son, what do you think? 
Jesus says, well, Dad, your honor, the prosecuting attorney is actually correct. Uh, That list is, well, actually, I have my own list here. There's a ton of things. You're like, okay, I'm getting nervous. But then Jesus says, oh, yeah, but I died for each one of those sins. My perfect life is more than a substitute payment. Verse 34, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And the devil slinks away again and again and again. And he's mumbling under his breath. I got that whole thing rigged up there. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul was unstoppable. He was unaccusable. But more than that, Christian, look, verse 35. He's like, we are inseparable. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, that word means pressure. Maybe some of you, okay, I, I resonates with me. Shall pressure or distress, it actually means narrowness or confinement. There are people in our church that right now are confined, some literally to a hospital bed. What shall separate me from the love of Christ? Not stress, not pressure, not confinement, or it says persecution. That is suffering for your identification with Jesus. Not famine, he says. That means that... That time, those times when you have a lot less than you think you can survive on, is that going to separate me from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine or nakedness? Nobody naked here this morning. That's good. Or peril or sword? Y'all, this is a rhetorical question. Paul's basically saying, no one, nothing, nothing can separate me from the fact that Jesus loves me. I'm hoping that, that this is getting across right now. I feel like in this, these verses, we are getting into now the inner sanctum, the holy of holies of Paul's inner dialogue. Look at all the things he says. Look, tribulation, no. Distress, no. Persecution, no. Famine, no. Nakedness, peril, sword. Let me just read for you again some of the, these verses from Second Corinthians 11. The guy who wrote both of these. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. Journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen. And he just goes on and on. Look at that. Juxtapose that with these verses. What's going to separate me from the love of Christ? If you haven't been paying attention up to, to now, please pay attention here. The difference between, here's my question, what's the difference between Paul and you and me? Well, I can think of two. He had more trouble than us, but also more joy. Why? It's because of the beginning of this verse, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The word separate means to divide, to come between. Paul says, look, no trial comes between my Christ and me. Every single circumstance, I still know He loves me. I know the Father loves me. How do I know? Because He died. He sent His Son to die for me. 
He's not holding back anything that is good for me, that is absolutely best. He's not holding back anything that fits into his plan of making me perfect, glorified, just like Jesus. Listen, when you settle that by believing in his word, I promise you, you will have joy in jail. You'll have peace in persecution. You'll have tranquility in tribulation. You will be de-stressed in distress. Here's the deal. If you don't, all of that bad stuff is still going to come. But without the supernatural things that Paul's enjoying here. I want to show you something interesting to me on that list. The last on that list in verse 35. It says, what can separate me from the love of Christ? The fact that Jesus loves me and I know it. The last word is the sword. He says the sword can't separate me from Christ. How do scholars think that Paul died? Beheading from the sword. The sword that separated his head from his body could not separate him from the love of Christ. And as a matter of fact, it ushered him into the love of Christ that he could actually embrace. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Okay, there's no more dramatic probably way to say of the things that he was facing, right? This is from the Old Testament Psalm. This was a lament of Israel. Basically, it was the same question that I asked earlier this, this week, then maybe some of you did too. Lord, have you forgotten me? I'm like a, a sheep with no shepherd. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm being led to the slaughter. I'm, I'm being led away to a violent death. But listen to the rest of his inner dialogue. For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Again, an odd phrase. More than conquerors. It means over conquerors or super conquerors. Super duper conquerors. I don't know about you, but I would settle for just being a run of the mill conqueror. Yeah? Oh, you guys are like, no, I want to be a super duper conqueror. All right, here's how you do it. Paul says, look, even when I'm being led to the slaughterhouse, I'm more than a conqueror. I shared this with you. A conqueror is someone who rejoices when the battle is over. Listen, we're all going to be conquerors. If you're a Christian, that is. If you're a Christian, there will come a time when the battle is over. And you'll be a conqueror. But Paul enjoyed his life as crazy as it was. More than that. He's a over conqueror. A super duper conqueror. A super conqueror is one who doesn't just rejoice at the end of the battle. He rejoices in the battle. I keep kind of wanting in my brain to, uh, to go to some uh, kind of hero kind of movie where there's this guy and he is such a conqueror an over conqueror that he's confident he knows he's going to win so he actually in a weird way enjoys the battle um okay how about in terms of video gamers when, when you have unlimited lives right you're like okay i know that no matter what happens here i've got another one so hey watch this behind my back Okay, 
That's the idea. Paul says, look, I know how this ends. With me in G- and Jesus in glory. He says, I know that there's no circumstance, nothing at all can separate me from the love that Jesus has for me. So even in the trial, even in the midst of it, I can glory. Verse 38, Paul says, look, we're unaccusable, we're inseparable, we're unstoppable. And now as he goes, as he ends this chapter, it's kind of like he says, okay, just to be sure, let's look around the universe. Let's take some inventory and look around at things that people are scared of and see if there's anything that can separate me from the love of Jesus. Verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look, Paul goes down that list really quickly. Look, death just brings me to Jesus faster. Life gives me more time to honor Him. Angels, principalities, all of that stuff. I'm not scared of any of that because Jesus is with me. My present circumstances, wait, Jesus still loves me. My future worries, Jesus will be there. Height, depth, Jesus descended from heaven and He went down to the lowest parts of the earth. There's no place where the love of Christ will not hold me. He says, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me speak to those of you who are the most stubborn when it comes to, well, I'm still not convinced that he's for me. Because what happens is, and I've been here, you can look at all these verses and goes, okay, nothing can separate me. He, He promises to love me no matter what. It says, but what about me? Can't I separate me from the love of Christ? Well, aren't you a created thing? Yes? So, the only thing you can really do is take yourself out of the enjoyment of His love for you. Y'all, this is the, the soaring inner dialogue of Paul when he was beaten, shipwrecked, hungry, thirsty, naked. Can I ask you, don't say out loud, Is it yours? Is it your inner dialogue? If it is, you are unstoppable. And that's my prayer, that no one would leave here living any less an enjoyable life than Paul. That that would be our inner dialogue, that we would get it, that we would understand that there's nothing that can separate you, Christian, from him. I want to close with this idea real quick. You guys remember what the, the, the context of uh, the last chapter, Romans chapter 7? How Paul ended that? He was going, okay, I don't do the things I want to do. I, I do the things I don't want to do. And he, start, he almost sounds schizophrenic. He's just like, he's kind of going crazy. Remember how miserable he was at that point? Until he said, Lord Jesus, who, who will come and rescue me from this body of death? And it's Jesus. Well, now we get to chapter 8. And it's been suffering and trials in the beginning and nothing has changed circumstantially but his thinking is being more and more awesome. Same thing happened, by the way, in David's life. You look at all the Psalms and you see how he's like, Lord, where are you? What's going on? And by the end, because he spent time with the Lord, he's rested in him. 
in the shadow of his wings. He's talking victoriously, even though, you know, he, it wasn't like he said, OK, I'm going to put the pin down and go change the circumstances and come back. No, he was living in the reality that God loved him. Here's my, my point. Long way of saying it. Where are you living? At the end of Romans 7? I, I, me, me, all about me? Or at the end of Romans 8? Look, God's in control. He loves me. And nothing is going to change that. 